Welcome to Creative Welly episode 18. My name is DK and you're listening to the audio version of the video podcast that is Courageous Conversations with Bold Humans. As ever, big shout out to Jono over at Empire Films for producing the video version of this and also our host, David at Flashdog Studio, who gives us the space so that we can record these amazing and unique video podcasts. In this episode, we're speaking with Anne-Marie Brooke, co-founder of Human Rights Measurement Initiative, and also Cody Ellingham, a photographer and wanderer. We chat about their respective professions, covering off human rights, economics, photography, wandering, creativity and cities and architectural kind of photography and everything in between. This is a great conversation. We hope you enjoy. Uh, How would you like to start this conversation? Have any of you got really juicy questions for each other? Kick it off. Do you? I'm interested. You came here on a bicycle. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love my bike. I have an electric bike. Yeah, I really love it. Yeah. Do you take it everywhere? Uh, no, but um, everywhere around Central Wellington. Yeah. yeah. How do you find? Uh, I mean, how do you find cycling in Wellington? Uh, well, I mean, there's not enough cycle lanes. I mean, that's mm. kind of obvious. And you know, I I bike from where I live to work, and that involves going down Courtney Place. So I'm sharing lanes with buses. Um, but, you know, I don't, I don't really let it bother me. I just, um, I, I kind of enjoy, I come down a hill first thing, and I really love the exhilaration of kind of like whizzing <laughs> down the hill. And yeah, there's just something sure. about being out in the elements um, and going fast, but not too fast. I'm not, you know, a speed hound or anything. I tend to break going down hills. Cause Have you ever tried mountain biking? I don't really like mountain biking. I have tried it. Yeah, and I don't really like um, cycling as a form of exercise. I like it as a form of c- c- as a way of getting from A to B. I get, I'm a commuter cyclist. At a high level, then I guess how do you how do you feel about Wellington as a as a place to live? Have you been here your whole life, or no? Um, so I was born in, Dun- in Dunedin and lived in Gisborne and Auckland briefly. Then I spent some time. I spent a year in Peru yeah. on an exchange program, and then I. Went to Otago University, so back to my hometown, and then I moved to Wellington after that. And I have been away and back again a couple of times since then. But on, it's now the longest place I've lived. Okay, what keeps bringing you back, or what what what, what is it about Wellington that you that, that draws you here? I really um, I really like the the fact that it's a, a smallish city with everything that I could want in a city, but it's also interspersed with a lot of nature. Um, and I don't really think I'm a really big city person, and I'd love to hear about your time in Tokyo. Oh, yes. Um, but like when I, the biggest city I've lived in was Paris, and lived there for six years. And the first year was quite interesting, because people, and I'd love to hear if you had a similar experience in Tokyo, or maybe you just loved it from the get-go. But I remember kind of wondering what all the fuss was about. <laughs> and people would say, wow, you're living in Paris. And... Um, it's so many people's dream to live in Paris, and it wasn't my dream. I went there for a job, <laughs> um, and, you know, and I appreciated it. But it took it 
took time to grow on me. And one of the things I realized after about a year, and I wasn't completely happy and I was trying to figure out what it was, and I realized that I was missing nature mm. because I was living in the city and there's so much concrete and it's such a built up environment. And once I realized that and started making a point of getting out into nature, then I felt that I could appreciate the, the city more. Yeah, and I, th- I think I can resonate with that. Mm. You know, I was in Tokyo for five years and it's a uh, you know, huge flat concrete mm. mass. Um, there's a little bit of nature on, on the outskirts, but it is a, an effort to get there. And, uh, you know, in Wellington, you can just go for a little walk and you're in it. Yeah, you know? yeah um, we've got the harbour and we've got the hills and we've got all these town right, belts. Right. It's, um, yeah, I mean, the weather is not the best. That's the, that's the only downside of Wellington, in my opinion. How about uh-huh. you? Because you're, oh, sorry. No, I was just going, well, I love the weather. It's not too bad. Do you? Yeah. Every now and again, I meet weirdos who say things like that. Sorry. <laughs> no, but I, I suppose I'm from the valleys of South Wales. So when yeah, I first right. moved to uh, New Zealand and I was moving from Christchurch mm. to Wellington, people were warning me about the hills, the rain and the wind. And I was like, that sounds like home to me. Because mm. I grew up on the side of a hill with lots of rain and wind. But so. when we have fantastic weather, don't you just love those days? Do, do, you, think, do you think it makes those days so much better, the fact that they're... I don't know. I'm kind of, like you say, oh, I really like when it's really cold or the rain's coming diagonal and the wind is just battering everything because you feel alive, right? Yeah. You're part of nature. So nature doesn't mean just green. Nature mm. means every natural kind of thing. I think my, my take on it is working in the creative sector mm. is Wellington's a really good place to be based. Um, and it, it fits only when it's, it fits within, I guess, a larger global network. Yeah. I think being here um, and, and, and being based in Wellington, working in Wellington and, and having a clientele in Wellington only I think it can be a little bit tough because it is a, a smaller city. Um, but I think if you can situate yourself working you know, nationally and internationally and having the lifestyle and the livability of a small city, mm. which is so connected, you know, you've got the airport right there. It, it's, all, it, it's very convenient. And I think the opposite of that is a place like Tokyo where um, you know, it's got everything, but it's also this massive behemoth. And yeah. you're, you're competing in, I guess, a... A local market that's world class, but in Wellington, you know, it's the it's a, you're competing on a, if you are competing at the global market with a, a local lifestyle that's it's really nice. It's, it's, we're so, so lucky. What, yeah. what took you to Tokyo and to Anne Marie's earlier question? Sorry, I cut across to you. Like, why and how was your experience in Tokyo? Oh, so um, story time. Um, so many years ago, I was um, so I'm from Hawkes Bay originally, Hastings, and um, I was just kind of stuck there. Um, I was in my late teens and I was just sort of looking for something to do and I was actually, um, I was doing office building cleaning so late, I was one of the guys who comes in sort of after everyone leaves and, yeah. and vacuums up and you know cleans things and, and that sort of thing and I was doing that just part time um, living at a friend's place um, you know crashing on the sofa and I was sort of just in this period of my life where I was like what, what am I even doing um, and one day because, you know, there's something very zen-like about having a, one of those vacuum cleaners on your back and, it's, you know, this white noise. And I was, um, I was cleaning the Smith & Smith glass, you know, the auto glass repair. They, got, they had a little office and I was cleaning that up on Karamu Road. And I had this epiphany and it was just like, yeah, go to Japan. Mm. I don't know where the voice came from. I still mm. wonder to this day. Um, but it was like, yeah, mm. go to Japan. And um, I started making some plans and I thought, look, I can't not listen to that directive. 
So I started making some plans, and I was, you know, I wasn't, I didn't have any money. I didn't have any sort of pathway. So I thought, okay, well, what do I, what do I have to do? I got to maybe go to uni, get a degree, to get a visa. You know, there's all of these steps. So I ended up moving to Wellington to study Japanese. Um, got some really good grades, so I could get a scholarship. All of these things. Two two and a half years later, found myself doing an exchange. I was there for a year, um, made a, a huge network, got into photography. Um, just a few serendipitous things happened, and I managed to, you know, get to know a few people. I had to come back to Wellington, finish my degree, and then boom, I was straight back over there on a working holiday. So, and then yeah, it all sort of happened. But it all come came back to having this this cleaning job. It was it was quite mm. profound, um, and there was something about it because I was trying to. I remember trying to learn Japanese because I kept doing the job for a little while, mm. and I'd write the characters on my hand, or you know, mm. like the, the China, uh, Japanese characters, so I could remember. And so, mm. as I was, you know, I'd look at them and, and try and rem- memorize the language. Um, Start doing, you know, teaching myself the language. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I let myself sort of be directed to mm. to it. Mm. Yeah. Awesome. And how was your experience then when you got there? It's obviously you, you stayed there for over five years, right? Yeah, yeah. So the second when I went back to work, um, it was it was quite funny because I, I left. I, I, you see people graduating here all the time, but I left pretty much the day my classes finished. Um, I mean, we did our final test, and I was like, "Yep, you know, I was pretty confident uh-huh. that it was going to be okay." So I left, and that was sort of October, two thousand fourteen, I think, and landed in Tokyo. Um, started looking for a job, so I was like, "Okay, what am I going to do?" Um, you know, there's a lot of job. I mean, it's a big place. There's a lot of jobs floating around. I, I really wanted to be working in design and, and web stuff, you know. Um, so I just started going and talking to people. We have the, put on the suit, you know. They've got these recruit suits you've got to wear when you go to a job interview in Japan. I didn't know anything. My Japanese was passable, but, you know, um, I managed to get a job at a, a web agency, and they were like, yeah, we need a designer, and, you, you know, you, you look like you're ready to go. And, um, yeah, that led to that, and... Um, Working some long hours, making some stuff happen, and then um, uh, one thing led to another, and I started doing my own thing. I started a business, started doing a lot more photography, getting some projects, and then it all just sort of spun up. But yeah, it was sort of at first I didn't, I just sort of went. Yeah. I didn't really have a plan. It was like that Nike thing, just do it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And where did the photography come from? Well, I, I was working these long hours. You know, Japan's kind of notorious for it, but you know. Yeah. I'd, I'd go. I'd leave my place maybe seven a.m. and you go on the, the the subway and you get there an hour and a half later, and then you'd work and you'd leave. An maybe. hour and a half later. Yeah. Wow. Um, and it was it was compact. So we used to mm. ride the the Ginza line, which is like the oldest subway in Tokyo, and it's like you know you got people here and here. Mm. You know, it's it's. You talk. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's they squeeze you in, you know. Um, yeah. You know, and my office was in Ueno, so we'd we'd go there, and. Um, yeah, would would you know maybe work until eight or nine at night, and you know it would be dark by the time you finished. So you never really saw daylight because you're kind of going from a subterranean tunnel to an office. Mm-hmm. And so after work, I started actually started just wandering. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a camera at that point. Um, I, I had a camera, but I had sold it because I had no money. And so I was like, okay, mm-hmm. I just wander. I use my eyes, you know, the original yeah. camera. Um, and then <laughs> I managed to get a camera and started just taking photos and exploring the place. And it really, yeah, just went from there. That's really cool. Thank you. Yeah. What, what did you? I want to ask more about the photography, but I'm also really intrigued to know how you, what you did during that three hours a day commute. Oh, how I mean, did you use that time? Yeah, I mean, it was three. I would say that was door to door. So leaving my house, okay. getting to the office, maybe okay. an hour, hour and a half. Um, but yeah, I used to listen to just music or just yeah. sort of zone out. It's very meditative because I don't know. Have you ever been to Japan? 
Yeah, I've been to Tokyo once. Yeah, yeah. so the subway is just quiet. Yeah. No one talks. No one says anything. Yeah. So you're just amongst, you know, one carriage maybe there's, you know, 100 people, 200 people. So you people. don't get a couple of friends standing there no. for a away together? No, no. What would happen if they did? Like, is it oh, just a couple just, unacceptable to do that? Yeah, I mean, you could you could have a small conversation at a very small voice, you know, but I don't think you'd be oh. on the phone or anything like that. So oh. you're just amongst other humans, oh. you know, just in this collective. They meditate. It's very yeah, med- it's very yeah, zen. Like you say, oh. zoned out. And That's really of, interesting. And you hear the train, you know, you know, just sort of yeah. on the rails. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah. So when you picked up a camera and. and like, I don't want to tell the story, but in a sense of the wandering and the original camera which grew at your eyes obviously ignited other things in you then. Yeah. Like that little voice yeah. was telling probably other stories then. So yeah. what was that like, you know, to start to see well, it's just Tokyo a, through a different lens, I suppose? It's such an incredible place, you know, growing up in, in Hastings, which yeah. is, you know, there's one street, you know, and, and, and a couple of couple of shops you know the, the, yeah. Tokyo is, is really you could spend a whole life there and never see it all mm. and I just found that very um, empowering and I have talked to friends about this because a lot of people who come from smaller places and they move to a big city you know it's this kind of awe-inspiring moment you know, this kind of machine of the city whereas I think growing up in a big city you know you, you from a young age you sort of put blinkers on and you don't necessarily mm. see it um, so for me, it was always inspiring, and we used to just go on these huge walks because it's, it's a very walkable city, and very, you know, you can bike it as well, mm. and it's very flat. It's so very nice, you know. You get you go out for a, you know for a ride, and it just you can go for hours, and it's it's very nice. So you, you could just explore the city, and around every corner, there's something to discover. Mm. Yeah. So where did the where did you, the transition from being a designer, traveling, 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 you know, commuting to I think I'm actually a photographer now. Well, I've actually maintained pretty much both of them, and I have a reason for that. So I think there is a there is this idea of of being you know purely a photographer, but I, I've you know I've, I've done some books, I've done different things, and having the design in that is really important, and and kind of having a total creative process. And so I still do a lot of design work. I enjoy creating you know small um, small applications or you know books, you know, photo books, that sort of thing, and actually creating those, um, working on projects with friends, collaborating on things, and I've pretty much maintained that the whole time, I think. It's not just about the photos, it's kind of the whole experience of it. Mm. Um, and then people come to me and they say, hey, you've done that, I really like it, can you do that for me as well? And so I'm able to work with projects, and that means that, you know, I can travel and, and do a project somewhere, I mean, not now, but, you know, back then, um, I could do that, and it would it would kind of enable the photography, and it was this really nice yin-yang. Um, and at this moment, you know, I'm in New Zealand, um, I'm able to kind of go back to the design work because we can't travel as much as the old days. Mm-hmm. And that kind of, yeah, allows me to continue doing what I do. Mm. Yeah. Do you yearn for Tokyo? I, I get nostalgic. Um, right. And not just Tokyo, I mean places I've been, yeah. you, know, um, uh, you know, Shanghai, Hong Kong, different places which... Mm. You know, I, I watch a movie or I go have food with friends and we're like, it reminds me of it. And I'm like, yeah, that's, can't yeah. wait to get back, yeah. Mm. yeah. What about you in Paris? Like, was that a similar experience going to a big city and opening your eyes and seeing how, I don't know. Did it change you in any way? What do you reflect upon with your Paris experience? 
Um, yeah, I developed a real appreciation for champagne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I think previously in New Zealand I'd only ever had kind of like reasonably inexpensive bubbly. Okay. Um, and it really wasn't my preferred beverage. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was a little, you know, I kind of thought maybe champagne would be like that. Not like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so that's one change. Um, yeah, I grew to really love the city mm -hmm. and our life there. I had a great life there. Um, really loved my job. Um, had great friends. Um, it was so nice being in the middle of Europe and being able to travel to so many places yeah, so easily. Cool. It was a really great time and kind of tough to make the decision to move back. Right. And we decided to move back. We'd just Our son had just been born, but we didn't come back because he'd been born, but that just happened to be happening around that time. But we decided to come back because we thought after six years, our links with New Zealand had become you know, really a lot weaker and mm. you know, we'd missed you know, funerals and weddings and okay. significant events and it felt as though if we stayed then we'd be almost there permanently mm. um, and then we thought well if we stay we're never going to really belong here so I think we were really looking for a community and we thought that yeah. we we had never intended to leave New Zealand permanently gotcha. we kept kind of said we're, we're going for two or three years and then we kept extending that Classic, um, yes. It's quite, yeah. Only a year for a year. Yeah, but then after coming back, I found settling back into Wellington very difficult and okay. had really missed Paris for, for mm. several years. It took several years, definitely, to... That's quite shake it off, almost. Right? Yeah, or shake it off and get into, a new, get into a new groove. Yeah. That's quite illuminating. I, I think I can relate to that, you know. Yeah. I think I was, you know, I was in Tokyo and I was travelling a lot at the time as well through, you know, through China and different places and you start to wonder who you are because, you know, and, you know, you're always the outsider. And at that point, you know, pretty much anyone from the Southern Hemisphere is, your, is, a, is a cousin or a brother of you, you know, when you're in a place like that. And so you start to wonder, well, where, who am I? And you ask yeah. hard questions, which are, you don't necessarily ask when you're, you're just growing up here. Yeah. Um, what is New Zealand? What, who, you know, what's my background? And I would imagine there's some similarity between France and Japan in that they have quite strong cultures yeah. and yeah. don't really want to integrate foreigners especially. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, well, that, yeah, they've got a, a strong aesthetic culture. They've got, you know, a, a, an identity mm. and, you know, you're, you are, it's a huge, they're huge places, you're, you're interfacing with that. Um, and that's part of the appeal of it, is you go there and you get to yes. join in on that. Um, yeah. But as you say, you, your sense of belonging and, and ideals and, and things that you grow up with, you know, I think... I reflected a lot on on my own, um, you know, growing up and, and, and spending time, you know, just even in nature or you know, going fishing and stuff like that, which is, you know, quite a commercial, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a hobby, it's something people do, but, you know, it was kind of a way of life for us. It was, a, you know, it was very much ingrained in our life and, and, the, and things like that, which you can lose in the big city. And then, you know, you start thinking, well, what, what's left? Um, so I, I can resonate with what you're saying, yeah. Hey DK, I was wondering, have you had one of those, you know, voice voices telling you what telling you what to do <laughs> experience that no, kind of I've never set had... a new course? No, I, I mean don't. not literally necessarily, but No, I know what you mean. I, I've never had that. I've been really mm. I suppose lucky if I had to sum it up in uh, transitions between different industries because mm. I started in youth work, I suppose, or leisure development and youth work and 
worked in councils. That was my first career path. So how did I end up here mm. is you can't really draw a line. However, only in the last year, couple of years, have I been able to do that. So upon reflection, I've kind of mm. reflected back and go, actually, there's a thread that runs through everything I've done, even though I've done so many different things. And that's all about voice. Mm. Uh, giving people voice or agency, mm. you know, when I'm a youth worker and I was advocating for young people, right? Um, or when I was uh, helping people, when I first companies I started was to help people to utilize the web. So again, online, blogging and stuff. This was like 2006 when we were using like Blogger and MySpace and Fox and Zanga, things that don't exist anymore. Um, and I was all about giving them voice, whoever it was in the training. Now as a speaker coach or event organizer, yeah, it's all about and giving other people that space to be celebrated. Yeah. yeah. But only upon reflection. So yeah. I've never had a guiding principle until now, but yeah. it's only come through yeah. looking backwards. Yeah. yeah. So I'm kind of inverted from you, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, but it's not, everybody has different approaches to life, right? Yeah. And it's wonderful you had something leading you somewhere that then invigorated something else yeah. and new ideas. Yeah. What about you? Have you had that? Because I'm fascinated if I can overlap that with another question. Because I, with all these types of experiences and I bring people together, I obviously look at your websites and I look at your LinkedIn history, reveal more, you know, and just say, ooh, look at that. And I'm fascinated by how much of an economist you were mm. right up until your latest mm. project. But you were like a diehard economist, right? Oh, yeah. You couldn't <laughs> remove you from that sphere, yeah. in a sense. Um, and I'm not having a go. I'm just literally saying that's fascinating because yeah. even though I kind of knew that of you from our experiences together, I didn't know how deep it went, like the OECD stuff, Reserve Bank stuff. You were just an economist, like rock and roll. Mm. But now you're doing like economy in a different human scale. Yeah. So I'd love you to speak about identity and your callings and what, where you've ended up. Yeah, and it, I think it really is a calling of a sense, um, but emerged quite gradually. Right. And uh, it really started when I was in Paris working at the OECD and I was working on country desks, so writing economic reviews for particular countries. Right. And they basically giving advice to governments on their economic policy. And huh. I worked on a couple of countries where you know, I kind of got quite interested in some of the human rights challenges in the countries and mm. was, you know, I've always been a big believer that, you know, respecting people and giving people, you know, mm. the, whatever it is they need to manifest their full potential is going to be good for the economy as well, right? Mm. So I was you know, looking for how to bring some of these human rights issues into my reports. And I realized that I couldn't without data because as economists, you have to kind of, kind of show things empirically. And I, that kind of led me on this long kind of path of, I, you know, I kept trying to give it up <laughs> and it kept kind of re-emerging <laughs> and saying, hang on, hang on, what about the fact that there's no human rights data? <laughs> and I started, you know, Googling in my spare time and like sending email, random emails to people who were working in the space. And after moving back to New Zealand, I went to a, an Amnesty International um, anniversary event, I think it was like their 50th anniversary since right. their founding, and I met the Secretary General of Amnesty International, Salil Shetty, and I asked him about this. It's like, what, what, what data do you have? And you know, they don't normally think in terms of data, so mm -hmm. when I look back at that conversation, I realised that we were kind of talking past each other right, a lot. Yeah. 
Um, but what I realised coming out of that conversation was that nobody really seems to be thinking about quantitative data in the in the um, human rights world. Um, not in terms of country level, because you've had you've had all the countries around the world since the, the since World War Two, and when the United Nations was um, set up, countries have gotten together and kind of agreed on okay, these are what human rights are, and we agree that we should all respect them. Mm. That's what the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is, and then there's been a whole lot of treaties and covenants that have been drafted since. But no one had ever figured out a way of producing a numerical way of tracking how well countries are actually meeting those obligations. And because I didn't have a human rights background, it never even crossed my mind that this could be something I could do. Mm. But I thought it was important. So what I was trying to do was find someone else who was already doing it and then maybe I could help them or um, somebody else who wanted to start a project doing it, and then I could help them. And after a bunch of conversations, eventually I kind of had this light bulb moment of, you know, because I, I would say to people, someone should, blah, blah, blah. And then eventually one day I had this light bulb moment of, well, well, I am someone. Like, is there any reason why I couldn't do it? And, you know, it kind of seemed like, well, why not? So then I had to go through this process of letting go of my previous career and moving into the unknown um, and trying to do something that was very innovative and we didn't have any funding for it. Mm. Um, wow, that's fascinating. It is. I'm interested. So you, you, have you, how, tell me more about the this, this system, this kind of data, data first you know, analysis of human rights, what's that look like? Well, um, so to continue the story of how it came about, I decided that the, one of the best ways to start would be to run a, a what we called a co-design workshop where we brought together people from a range of different sectors mm. and we, we, so this event ended up being hosted by the Human Rights Institute at the University of Connecticut and we invited someone from Amnesty International, someone from Human Rights Watch, we had someone from the UN, someone from the World Bank we had some academics who were working in the measurement space. I was really the only person there who didn't really know anything about human rights. Although I was starting to learn by this point. And by the end of the th- two and a half days together, we had kind of mapped out what information exists and done these kind of mapping exercises or visioning exercises for thinking about how might having data to track country performance you know, really be valuable for the world. Um, and basically it's, it's a vision of when you can really measure and track performance, it's about creating a world where countries are competing to see who can treat people the best. Mm-hmm. And um, at the end of that workshop, there was a, you know, a core group of us who were really enthused and we sat around after the workshop and said, well, we, we need a name. What are we going to call ourselves? And we brainstormed and came up with the Human Rights Measurement Initiative. Um, which we call HERMI for short, H-R-M-I. So HERMI is what we do. And we've now got a, I would now describe HERMI as a global data platform. So we've got a website where we um, present our data in um, visual form. And different rights have different methodologies. We've got two main methodologies at the moment, but we're not yet capturing all rights in international human rights law. So we'll undoubtedly add additional methodologies Mm. in the future. Um, And it's a really collaborative effort. So we've got Mm. people all around the world contributing to it. Hermie itself doesn't yet have its own um, legal identity. 
So we have different host organisations in different countries. Um, here in New Zealand, we're hosted by Motu Economic and Public Policy Research, which is a not-for-profit think tank, basically. But it's the framework that you guys have developed, yes. right? That yep. now can be adapted and adopted in other... Yeah. Or sorry, not adapted, more just adopted and used as that measurement tool. What are the elements that you pick out to decide whether a country is thumbs up when it comes to human rights? So we're measuring, at the moment we're measuring 13 rights and right. we split them into three categories. So one is economic and social rights, so that's your right to mm. education, food, health, housing and work. And so the obligation is on governments, not necessarily to provide all those things directly, but to set up you know, like a good you know, regulatory framework or yeah. whatever is needed to make sure that people can, you know, have access to those things. And then second group is what we call, um, we call safety from the state rights, which is physical integrity rights. And it's the right mm -hmm. to not have your body be physically harmed by the, by the state. So if the state, if you say something criticising, you know, just under Rajoon, and then yeah. the police come in and arrest you and send you off to prison, yeah. which is what happens in many places, mm -hmm. um, that's a physical integrity right violation. Or okay. if they then beat you, um, or if they arrest you and nobody, know, nobody in your family or your friends know where you are, then that's a violation of your right to freedom from disappearance. Um, and then there's death penalty, execution, extrajudicial execution, those are all the physical integrity rights. And then the final category are what we call empowerment rights. So those are your rights to express yourself. So um, attending mm -hmm. protests, joining groups, freedom of opinion and expression, and the right to participate in government, so kind of democratic rights. What countries are doing really well, uh, as an example, across those three areas? Well, it's kind of hard to generalise because countries tend to do better on some and worse on others. Right. Um, and so, I mean, and we don't, for the economic and social rights, we've got most countries in the world covered. But for the, for the other rights, we're, we're using an expert survey methodology to collect information and we don't, haven't yet extended to all countries in the, in country? the world. Sorry? Collecting in country? Uh, so yeah, we externally? have, um, for most countries, it's in country. It's wow. only external if it's not safe for people to be doing that sort right. of work. So yeah. we're, we're surveying subject matter experts, so people mm. like human rights lawyers or um, researchers or journalists who are reporting on human right. rights issues. And you know, so Saudi Arabia is one of the countries where we've been running the survey right since the beginning. And that's a country where it's not safe to do mm. human rights work. And so we probably have some survey respondents in Saudi Arabia, but most would probably be outside of the country. Okay. But there's a high degree of um, data security and safety around them, and uh, you know, survey response. the survey responses are all anonymous, so we put okay. you know, protecting the identity of survey yeah. respondents is very high. This is accessible, right? Through, in other words, I can go online and look yeah. at the results, yeah. and I can track and yeah. I can measure and contribute, I suppose. Uh, no, probably not. Okay. Um, so our website is rightstracker.org. Um, so if you, the peop, you, not just anyone can be a survey respondent, so not right. anyone can contribute. Exactly. You have to be kind of nominated, so you have to, there's some kind of vetting process, mm -hmm. um, which is run by our in-country or, you know, country, our country ambassadors, yeah, um, who, you know, can help to, you know, decide who can be a survey respondent. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, that's, and you're, you're obviously doing that for your, your contribute, 
contributions there from Wellington, and you're working with a, a global network of collaborators, or yeah. So um, the Wellington team is pretty small. There's only three of us at the moment, um, and so we're I guess like a lot of the operations. Yeah. Our methodology leads, uh, my Hermie co-founders, um, who were at that original um, workshop, uh, Chad and Susan. They're both based in the United States. And then we have, um, for every country where we're running the survey, we have, or almost every country, we have a, a Hermie ambassador who's normally someone who lives in that country. They work in the human rights field. They know the local community. And so they're then our liaison person who helps connect us with the local mm. human rights community mm. and you know, helps verify that you know, our survey translations are accurate and all these kind of things. Mm. Wow. Um, so that, that's the a growing network. Sorry, uh, I was just going to ask, like, what's the aim or the next kind of 10 years to 500 years plan? Uh, well, hopefully in 500 years we won't be needed anymore because yeah. the world yeah. will already have achieved a, a state of, uh, you know, mutual respect for, for all humans. Um, next five years our goal is to um, get full global coverage with our, for all rights and really have our data being really used in some really high profile ways right. um, by those who can who have leverage i guess to influence government decision making really we're trying to encourage leaders and decision makers to put more attention on how the decisions they make affect people mm. How kind of uh, malleable must your framework be? Not the framework itself, sorry, mm. but the reporting, because if you look at certain countries, they're often doing things out of the blue. Um, they might have a bad human rights kind of uh, history, shall we say, but then there's something else that gets thrown into mix, and you think, whoa, that's a bit even further for them. Does that then get immediately reported on, adds the, the framework or numbers? Yeah, so we have our data are only updated once, are updated every year. So we're, in a few weeks we'll be releasing our 2021 data set which will cover what happened in 2020. So we gotcha. report for a whole calendar year. So if something happened last year in a particular country that would be picked up mm. in the 2020 data point. And now that we've got a few years of data you can see trends. So you can see a country was kind of tracking along here and then it has nosedived or it's picked up. Mm. Um, and people who um, know what's going on in each country, you know, when we kind of show them our data and we say, okay, so you're an expert you, you, on you know, human rights in Mozambique. Have a look at our Mozambican data and tell us what you think, because I don't know anything about mm. Mozambique. And generally the feedback we get is, wow, you know, that's actually quite accurately portraying, and this is what happened in that year, you know, when you can see that blip. Right. This particular event happened, and that's being picked up. Fascinating. How is New Zealand doing? Uh, New Zealand's doing. Um, oh, I would say overall, New Zealand's kind of in the, the better performing group of countries. Um, but there's there's some rights where you know we could really improve a lot, like partic what? particularly in the economic and social rights. Um, yeah. There's really you know as we show overall scores, but we also show which groups of people are. I guess more at risk yeah. of not being able to enjoy their rights. So you see really big ethnic disparities, in particular Maori really having much lower, um, much worse outcomes in terms of health um, and education and housing is a really big one and mm -hmm. just getting worse and worse. 
Um, so that kind of reflects either historical or current discrimination in policy settings. Okay. Um, and then also in terms of physical um, and empowerment rights, you know, the overrepresentation of Māori in the prison system, again, is something that is a, you know, a bit of a flash card that something's wrong. I'm, I'm interested in, in um, picking up the topic of housing a little mm. bit because that connects ah, a little yes. bit with my... Yeah. Of my series, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, could you, well, firstly, could you tell me a little bit more about sort of with with Hume, your your analysis of housing? Like, how does that look? What what does your reporting on that look like usually? Yes. Yeah, so what we do with the economic and social rights is we take publicly available data, and then we overlay it with a human rights lens. So we're not collecting the information ourselves; we're just kind of manipulating it, yeah. I guess. And what, what human rights, what international human rights law says, so the, the covenant for economic, social and cultural rights, it says that it kind of recognises the fact that wealthier countries can afford to have um, better housing on average or better health systems on average than poorer countries. And so unlike, for example, the Sustainable Development Goals, which just look at every country on the same indicators, what else? What our methodology does is it's, it benchmarks each country against other countries at a similar income level, and so it's asking how well is this country doing at using the resources that it's got available. So it's kind of GDP per capita. How well are they using that to ensure good outcomes mm. in this space? Mm. And so housing is a difficult one in terms of the the indicators because we look at things like affordable housing but the measure that we use actually isn't produced in New Zealand um, and then we look at things like um, infrastructure so access to you know water is pretty much universal in New Zealand um, but you know safely managed sanitation New Zealand's really not doing as well as it could there so there's still communities in New Zealand that don't have access to re that really good infrastructure. Um, the sort of things we're not currently looking at are things like homelessness and security of tenure. Um, but we've re recently just been doing an, an in-depth project that's been funded by the Human Rights Commission, digging into the disaggregation of housing statistics, so not looking at the ones that we normally monitor, but a much deeper dive. Mm -hmm. um, and it makes for kind of depressing reading. Yeah. <laughs> Um, even housing <laughs> density and things like that, and yeah. the quality, yeah. probably wouldn't come out of unless yeah, you so, really, really dug. So we look at things like, you know, um, and we're looking at health as well. So I'm not sure exactly where this fits, but there's, you know, there's often an overlap. So, mm. um, you know, incidents of um, particular respiratory illnesses yeah. can be linked to poor quality housing. In New Zealand, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's really interesting. I, I, I guess my um, impression is that um, what you're doing is very, I guess, data focusing you know, and the numbers, as you say, and just reflecting on my own practice, which is probably almost the opposite in the sense of it's, qu qu uh, you know, qualitative and, and photographic mm. and anecdotal, mm. and and these little vignettes of things. Mm. And um, just yesterday, I was doing some writing, just. Um, about my experience in, in Bangkok and exploring the, the shanty towns and um, trying to engage with that community and, and photographing um, that part of um, Bangkok and in a way you know it's 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 visual it's mm. it's these these moments you know walking through and, and, and seeing the communities and then seeing the, the you know just the um, the inequality and um, the lack of infrastructure uh, lack of sanitation lack of clean water um, and, and trying to bring that out visually 
artistically um, and then your, your own work which is kind of more the, the bringing the numbers and the heart you know the the facts about it and, and I think there's a bit of a connection there yeah yeah, I think it's the combination of the two that can really be most powerful. Yeah. And in fact, we often talk with um, human rights um, organisations, you know, like Amnesty, and they, they tend to use a much more narrative approach um, in terms of telling the story of a particular person who, you know, and their, their experiences and then, you know, kind of often building campaigns off of those stories. And we've talked about the power of combining those stories and data, because then data can kind of say when you've got when you've got over time and across country, and you can compare on that. You can then say, okay, this is the story, but this is not an isolated incident. Yeah. These data show that this is actually a pervasive pattern that you're seeing. Yeah. And I've always thought it'd be great to combine the words and the numbers with images. Yeah, <laughs> I think that that trio, or maybe just the two of yeah. I don't know. I think bringing images and yeah. again just helps to add to the because how do you engage people's heart, their minds, and their hearts? Yeah, I think for myself, you know, my my work's primarily architectural, right? So it's it's the places, and and I think in a way I I like that because it it is easy to you know potentially put you know have it, have this character, and it's almost a um, you know allegorical you know character that you're photographing this person in the space, but then you're you're putting a story onto it. Whereas I feel like um, with my work generally there's no people it's it's about the buildings as they are and then you know you're, you're able to populate it with with what you like but it, it, it's kind of a fact it's a building it's it's not like your um it's not like portraiture where you can kind of make someone smile or make them you know put on an angry face you know it's like it is what it is mm. um but as you say you know bringing in the data and, and looking at the story of places you know like for example one one thing i find very interesting is how public housing has developed in different countries at different speeds uh, at different times but often it ends up having similar tenants and you, you must have seen that in Paris with the, sort of some of the big uh, apartment buildings they have yep. there um, and because you have the same thing in Japan you have it in Taiwan you have it in, yep. in Bangkok you know and there's kind of mega apartment buildings and yep. they all seem to, tend to look the same mm. built from the same materials yep. um, and there's a bit of a common theme there yeah. Yeah, we don't really have that in New Zealand. No, no. I mean, we've got a few in Wellington, um, the mm. um, multi-storey. Yeah, there's a few, but it's not a. It's, it's, not, not, a, it's not the kind of mainstay of mm. public housing. That's right. Yeah, I mean, primarily you're looking at, well, originally the state house, and now with Kainora, you're looking at, uh, I guess, smaller, um, uh, smaller dwellings, and mm. um, that. But it's. I think maybe reflective of, of policy at the time and also idealism of what New Zealand w- wanted to be um, with, you know, independent homes. Mm. Mm. Um, and that's kind of come through, I think. Yeah. And also back then we had, you know, less population and more, you know, it was easier yeah, to, less. the kind of idea of every mm. family having a quarter acre section, yeah, I think is yeah. just not feasible anymore no. given population growth. Yeah. Well, I was interested when you were highlighting the idea of there is a, a, a crossover with some of the stuff you do when you highlighted it early on whereas you would I suppose create a foundational understanding with data and metrics and frameworks and stuff what you do yeah it just kind of I suppose humanizes that or what some of the charities are now doing definitely the narrative form right put the human or the the sad child on all the photos to try and get charitable contributions but I'm interested from what you touched upon is uh, like who is, I suppose, who is the who in your photos? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Well, I mean, 
in a way, the, the, the buildings are characters of their own, yeah. you know, and I think, you know, just as a state house, I think, in New Zealand, it, it, it means certain things. It, it tells its own story, um, and it could be anywhere. It's, 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 a, it's kind of, it's, it's a single character, but it's also pluralistic. Um, I think a certain architectural style, a certain scene, a mise-en-scene, it, it tells a story that you can, um, you can kind of engage with. And so the, the story is almost, you know, because I'm also the one outside looking in, so um, I'm kind of, I try to be this kind of objective, you know, photographer trying to capture the place. Um, but really, you, you can populate it with, with what you want to see and, and what you take from it, and I think it means different things to different people. Yeah. So this uh, latest piece of work that you're doing for and being shown up in the Auckland... Uh, photography festival? That's right, so I've got New Zealand Nocturnes which is a, a new series I'm working on so we have a small um, uh, a small exhibition uh, this end of this month and, and, the, and next month um, looking at New Zealand housing under moonlight so mm. these kind of old homes but there's something about I think nighttime that really brings out the character of the house um, and it lets you see things and it's this kind of double double vision where in broad daylight it, it is what it is but I think under under sort of this nighttime glow it takes on a bit of a, a different vibe. Mm. So you said under moonlight are you waiting for when there's a full moon or um, is it not only under moonlight? Not only moonlight I guess I like moonlight because it, mm. New Zealand cities are often very dark and so you know it's pretty much pitch black unless you have have some lighting or potentially street lighting. Um, I like to capture you know lights on inside as well um, to, to show that there's someone in there, there's, you know, there's, there's activity inside. Uh, but I guess at a high level, the story really is an engagement with, with housing, which I didn't really think about until I came back to New Zealand, because I've right. been back about a year and a half now. Um, you know, I had been working on this, all of this stuff about housing globally, different mm-hmm. countries and things, um, looking at how, you know, the, the, the lived environment, but then coming back to New Zealand and seeing it, and also the, the housing crisis and, and everything related to that, and seeing that there was no real artistic engagement, you know, it's, it's a you know a political you know discourse. There's nothing really saying, hey, this is a house, mm. you know, and, and just sort of laying it out. Yeah. And also, it's the singular rather than the the law of your work previous, which is when we met back in maybe 2017. You were yeah. back on a break or something, yeah. and you were going back over to Tokyo, and I got like really drawn into your work with the the scale of it. But now looking at your more recent work, it's singular, yeah. right? So there is some, I suppose, difference. And sorry. No, no, yeah, no, I, I, I can, I can relate to that. I mean, I think like my first major series, which was the Danchi Dreams, which was exploring the public housing in, in Japan, was, mm. I mean, uh, ultimately dense, densely inhabited structures. So there's a lot more people in there. It's, it's more city-like. Um, but ultimately, New Zealand is a, a lonely place. It's isolated. It's small houses and, and communities, and it's. It's just different, and you know, potentially, except for the CBDs of Wellington and Auckland, most places are, you know, are very quiet and, and isolated at night time. And most of the time, people drive everywhere. Most in most cities in yeah. this country, you know, and it's like you, you've got these little communities, and and you know, the, where's the where's the engagement? You know, mm-hmm. it, it's a lot of things wrapped up in the imagery, but. I'm sure you've noticed this, but the lighting as well is so much different in New Zealand and other countries. That's right. I don't know if you noticed that when you Street were in Paris, lighting. yeah, yeah like that the, they're quite dim, yeah. and they're very focused down. Yeah. Whereas go to the UK, the lighting is like kind of wrapped and open, yeah. so it's kind of diffused out everywhere, yeah. uh, which is why you get a lot of 
people saying they've never seen this, a good starry night in the UK because we have a problem with light diffusion. Yeah. Same with bigger cities like Tokyo, right? Yeah. But here, like you say, you drive a little bit and it's like, oof, the darkness descends. Yeah. I think that's a deliberate like, choice that New Zealand has made to have... I don't know if it's conscious, uh, other than there maybe is, a constraint. Yeah, I think there is some um, um, action you know, like definitely in the wider app, they've got like a, a dark sky program too right, with, yeah. with um, Stonehenge Altered Eyes trying to minimise that light pollution. Yeah. Um, and mm. you see a lot of stuff's moving to LED lights now um, mm. because the old, the, like the orange sodium vapour lights That's are right. just broad spectrum and they just nuke the whole thing. If you're trying to take a photo of the sky, for example. And they make it one colour as well yeah. rather than and not the real colour. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's definitely, I think, initiatives to reduce yeah. their light pollution. Yeah. Your 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 shots, both previous and now, are they long exposure or are they captured very quickly? Like, what's the setup and how? What's your process, I suppose? Yeah. So I, I mean, it's very much um, architectural photography. So I'm using a tripod, you know, thirty second, one minute exposure sort of thing, right. um, okay. depending on how bright it is. Maybe ten seconds if it's a bright shot. Mm -hmm. um, using architecture lenses, um, very much about the framing and, and precision. Everything's in focus. And trying to bring almost that sort of scientific objective thing, you know, you would see it as if it was, you know, if it was daytime, this is something you'd see in a, in a brochure for, you know, a home magazine. But under moonlight and with these older homes and, and the composition and, and choosing the place, it, it's kind of, it's the, it's the opposite of that as well in a way. It's, mm. it's very emotive, even though they're very clean cut, you know, images. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. And more recently you've been getting into NFTs. I've noticed yeah, some oh, variants of non-fungible tokens. Yeah, um, do, you, do you know NFTs? It's so weird, this stuff, so I'm going to allow you to explain yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, look, it, um, uh, basically, um, I mean, I, I had a play with it, you know, I've, mm. I've sold a few NFTs, and I'm, I guess I'm really interested in um, cryptocurrency generally. Um, do you I, want to explain kind of what that means and how you go about it in your world? Um, yeah, where do I start? Um, I'm familiar generally with the idea of cryptocurrencies. Right. Don't know about in, in, NFPs. NFT. NFTs. Yeah, I mean, look, I'll just, I, I, it's not a major, so I'll just say, look, you know, this is, um, it's, it's kind of a way of selling a digital asset, like mm -hmm. a photograph or, or something, and, you know, there's a marketplace for it. Yeah. Um, I pro don't want to maybe focus on it too much because I think the bigger idea, yeah. which maybe connects with, with what um, you're doing, which is maybe just the freedom that cryptocurrency promises yeah. longer term for human rights. You know, um, I mean, I'm very, I'm very interested in Bitcoin and what it holds as a potential for people who aren't able to bank, mm. people who aren't able to access financial facilities, are actually able to, you know, access a decentralized network, yeah. do all of these things. So, I mean, again, that's not really part of my practice, but it's something I think yeah. is, is happening. Explore, right? Just like the internet unlocked so much potential for yeah. communication. Um, you know, when you don't, if, when you're not able to communicate with people, you're not able to share your story. Um, you know that things can go get swept under the rug. Um, so just uh, just to add some flesh to the bones there, NFTs are shorthand for non fungible tokens, which basically means that if I wanted to buy a uh, copy of Cody's photo, a photo they like, yeah. obviously I would just pay for it and he would send me a photo, right? But what if I wanted it in digital form? Yeah, sure. The problem with that is obviously if he sells that to me, I can just use it, put it anywhere and yeah, share sure. it with anybody. Yeah. And I suppose then the uh, the worth of it very quickly gets diminished. Yeah. Over the, the bigger idea, I mean, uh, I, I think the bigger idea here is that um, with things like property, 
Mm. Um, you know, everything that we have, all the systems we have for that sort of stuff is very 20th century. You know, here's my, you know, even if it's digital, it's still a very manual process. But, mm. you know, what you're saying is it's in the blockchain. It's on the Internet. Yeah. You, you and know. there's only one of them. So yeah. it can yeah. no, be recorded that. back. Yeah. yeah. So that's the thing. But yeah, the whole crypto blockchain stuff, yeah. it has a lot of promise and I think it uh, it can be... I'm interested. I mean, I, I dabble with it. I'm yeah. interested in it. Um, I've, I think it's um, there's a lot of potential there and I think you sh- people should have their eyes on it. Mm. Um, but, but, you know, what, what, what the future holds for it, I yeah. think definitely with, with Bitcoin, there's a lot of promise there. Sure. Um, NFTs, we'll see how that goes. I think there's bigger applications. Yeah. I know it's a very small thing, yeah, and I only right. want to bring it up because it's such an emerging tech. Yeah. People are still getting it right. People are still working it out. Like just I, have, I have heard of some really interesting um, applications in the human rights field, mm-hmm. particularly in terms of um, tracing the origins of things in supply chains. So, you know, where, okay. does, where does the cotton that made your shirt come yeah. from? Um, and how can you know that that was, you know, produced in a sustainable way and gotcha. not using child labour or... Because once it's on the blockchain, you know, it's there, you know. And so there's, there's, I think that there's a lot of technology about using the blockchain to, you know, kind of mark products yeah, as they validate move, and validate them as yeah. they move through the supply yeah. chain. So there's lots of potential. Yeah. I think yeah. it's still relatively early days. It's early days, yeah. yeah. And I mean, the, the example that I, you know, I'm always interested in is, you know, look at something like Venezuela, you know, and countries with hyperinflation. Mm. And something like Bitcoin is the only way for those people to actually yeah. m- move their wealth around. Well, and they often tend to, they often tend to use US dollars. Or US dollars, but, you yeah. know, um, it's... also the means by which to distribute, distribute that money as well, yeah. rather than holding on to money, which can then be, mm. you know, taken literally from you yeah. if it's in the blockchain. Yeah. Kind of, it's really but, hard. yeah, I mean, um, yeah, it's interesting space, but, yeah. Also interested to ask you about, and it comes back to what you were saying earlier about collaboration and getting people in the room and also just offering up your ideas and having other people to add value to it, which is where Hermie started. Your kind of soundscape collaborations. Oh, yes. I really love those. I've been Thank online you. and did them a while, about a year ago, I think it was the first couple. Oh, yes. Yeah, so I've been, I've been working with, um, with my friend uh, Simon, who's uh, based in London, and so he's a, a sound artist, and mm. we... We just sort of put images and sounds together from different cities. And, um, really I mean, lovely. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's, we started during the lockdown, actually. Um, right. So, yeah, his name's Simon James French, SJF. Um, and we met in Tokyo, actually. Um, and we just sort of developed this creative relationship. Mm. And um, I just had a chat with him the other night. And um, it's sort of a 12-hour difference. But, um, what platform do you use for the... Delivering it or...? Yeah, for delivering it. Um, so he puts it up on you know, Spotify and all of the, mm. the sort of the major platforms. And we also have a small website where you can see the images and, the, and listen to the soundscape uh, together, which is called... And read your words, which is what I was doing the other night. Yeah. One of your magazines, the Rive magazine. That's right, yeah. So you have this atmospheric audio soundscape hitting you while you're not just looking at the images, but also reading the words that accompany it. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a richer, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I guess approach. the bigger idea, so Derive is kind of the philosophy right behind a lot of this work. And it means it's, you know, French sort of the wander to go out and to mm. kind of take him from um, this, this idea of wandering the city. And it kind of powers a lot of the work I do. And what I'm really interested in is kind of slowing things down and, and taking people back to kind of the journey story. Um, you know, everything's quite fast-paced these days, yeah. increasingly mm-hmm. so. And, I mean, I love long-format stuff. I love listening to albums. I love kind of going back to that th- sort of thing, which we've kind of forgotten in mm-hmm. a way. And so Derive is, you know, it's these long-format stories. It's 
albums, it's, it's you know, photo exhibitions, things that I guess take people back, slow it down a little bit, make pe- you know, ask people questions, mm. get people thinking. Yeah. Really enjoy- it's almost, I love the concept of the album there because it's, yeah, like remember when you used to buy an album yeah. and then pull it out and you're adding to it or liner notes and stuff like that. So albums have, are great, I yeah. love yeah. albums. Yeah. So you have the experience, but also like the lyrics or some story as well. And it's yeah. like the, it's the whole experience, yeah. And, and I think there's bigger questions around what's happening and globally, you know, there's sort of this, you know, d- you know, convergence on the millisecond almost where yeah. we've got a culture that doesn't see beyond... You know, there's a consumption doesn't see beyond sort of the next, mm. you know, next, uh, you know, swipe of, of, of the phone, you know. Yeah. And I think that can be a bit negative when you're trying to share a message that's important um, yes. or just trying to make, you know, put, put something valuable into people's lives. Or also just, uh, and then I'll, I've got a, some juicy questions. <laughs> Sorry, just, but just to finish off, because we were talking about technology, the intersection of something. Yeah. Your, your work, and I don't know how much you've gone back to it, because when we met, you were pl- also playing around with the, the old Connect stuff. Yeah. And I don't know how I would even start to describe that. So could you kind of give us a, an insight into what you started to do with some of the spatial yeah. photography, yeah. spatial capturing yeah, cities? I'm really interested in spaces, right? Mm. And, and I guess what I was experimenting with, I've always, I've, I've sort of had this idea of, you know, having a, a bit of tech, and then mostly an artistic vision, but you know, trying to play with the latest technology. And so using photogrammetry, which is where you take a lot of photos of something and you're actually able to recreate it from photos into a 3D object mm-hmm. um, and using that to scan spaces. And so um, working with some friends um, you know, on, on a project, we were able to scan buildings that are disappearing. Mm-hmm. And so the Anarchist House on Abel Street, uh, Abel Smith Street, for example, like I have a, it's quite a low quality scan, but it's still a scan nonetheless of that building, which is now gone, it's burnt down. Um, and so in a way I have this kind of 3D capture of that. And my, I've done a, a few of those, I've you know, scanned old streets in Shanghai and different places. And my take on it though, I, I was spending a, a lot of time on it, but I, I feel like in a way I'm going to park that for a while because the technology has kind of, taken over in a way and mm. I still see the artistic vision is what it is what I'm really interested in so I've got I've got all of this data but I'm just going to leave it and mm. put it back in the stable for a while and see what I can do you know in a couple of years when it's not just about new tech anymore it's about mm. actually the vision of the thing yeah so we'll see to be continued it's fascinating yeah to see some of the then the projections and yeah. installations that you did where you project literally walking through a wandering place. through a place like whether it be a subway or a few shops but you see this spatial granularization I suppose yeah. of that experience yeah. digitalized but then you're walking through with a very kind of I don't know the, yeah. lens on it or whatever it is the other thing that's had. really come in is with COVID is really because our intention I was working with some friends and we're like look we're going to make shows we're going to take this it's going to be you know the Van Gogh traveling show that goes everywhere but COVID came and it was like look in-person shows are not going to be feasible for some time um, digital stuff could still work, but it really it was about bringing people into the room mm. and having that experience, and that's something that you can do, you can only do with, with humans in, in, in a place, right? Yeah. So, yeah, we'll see. To be continued. Yeah. Mm. Love that. Yeah. Thank you. Ah. For sharing all, sorry, jump, jump in at any time, but I want to come back to you if that's all right. Sure. Around the Hermes stuff. What is the, um, what are you lacking at the moment in our project that you would love to like use this platform and give a shout out for and go, look, this is kind of weird. Uh, well, the, the thing that's always constraining us from, move, from moving forward even faster mm. is funding. 
exploit? Um, so that's the kind of ongoing challenge. But we have some kind of hopefully new funding streams coming on board okay. soon. In fact, one that I'm really excited about, but it is, it is an ongoing thing because, mm. and maybe just I'll just talk a little bit about the challenge we face, is we're producing a product that uh, we want to make freely available for you know, anyone to use, and particularly a lot of data users in this space are you know, working for human rights NGOs themselves who mm. are kind of struggling. Um, and data really is a public good, and the definition of a public good is something that people don't want to pay for. <laughs> <laughs> and public goods are normally funded by governments, yeah. but governments can't fund what we're doing because we're kind of tracking their own performance, so of they've course. got a conflict of interest. Yeah. So we're kind of falling through the cracks. And then the big you know, foundations internationally that fund human rights projects often want to be funding grassroots research. Mm. And there's a trend towards increasingly, and I think it's an important and overdue trend, uh, from about shifting funding away from um, organisations in the global north, so to speak, and towards the global south. Um, and you know, all very important stuff, but the project, what we're doing, couldn't actually be done in a lot of other countries where you really need to be in a country that really um, respects independence and isn't going to, where the government's not going to interfere mm. with the project. So New Zealand's a great location. Um, so yeah, we kind of don't, we're not a natural fit for most funding bodies. Um, so we kind of fall through the cracks. But having said that, we do seem to be making progress. We're just, the thing I'm really excited about at the moment is a, is a new um, work stream um, which I'm calling Capital Flows and Human Rights, which is about getting explore, working with the private sector to get our data being used to help um, influence, help the private sector use our data to bring their leverage on government decision-making. And, you know, the way I often think about it is if you're the leader of a, a country you're an autocrat, you don't really care about human rights. When human rights advocates like write something negative about you or your country's performance, you're just going to dismiss them. You really don't care. But you do care about capital flows. You want investment to come into your country. Um, okay. um, you need to be able to attract the, the funds that will allow you to build the, the roads or the projects that um, matter. And so we're really just now kicking off this bit of work to bring different organisations in the private sector together and explore you know, what, how we can make our data toolbox really useful for them. Perfect. So I'm really excited about that. How much is that coming from or being informed by your OECD time of kind of understanding how countries operate, right? That's probably... Yeah, well, it feels like things are going full circle for me. It's amazing. Because I started off working... My, my first job as an economist was working for the Reserve Bank of New Zealand. So kind of money and finance yeah. was what I did. And then when I first went to the OECD, I was working in their money and finance team, so doing stuff on capital flows. Mm -hmm. um, and then I was really... I you know moved over to country studies and, you know... But now... And, but right from the very beginning, I have always seen the private sector as a really important group to, to pull into what we're doing. Um, so when you say capital flow, because yeah. I'm not an economist, yeah. I don't really understand that other yeah. than just money going in and out. Yeah, so it could be um, 
could be a company, a multinational company that um, is going to um, invest in a particular country. Um, so they might have a country might have natural resources, and mm. they give a contract to a, a foreign company to come in and like use their technology to do the mining or whatever. Um, and that company then, depending on the human rights situation in that country, has to figure out how to behave in a way that's um, not that is respectful to the local people. Mm, um, gotcha. And you might have environmental protests, protesters protesting against the, the, the mining. You know, how do you handle those situations? Um, and then another one might be foreign direct investment, which is or in private investment. Might also be consulting behaviour, so you know, mm. big consulting firms who might be hired by a government to give them advice on their economic um, you know, policy and reforms. And you know, to what extent are those consultants taking into account human rights issues when they're wow, providing yeah. their advice? Um, you've also got the, the government bond market. So investors invest in government bonds all around the world. And there'll be lots of you know, investment, investment banks that create you know, index products. So you can invest in you know, a, a, an index of emerging market mm. sovereign debt. And increasingly, there's all these now ethical investment products yeah. being developed. Um, and people are developing, you know, I don't know if you've heard of ESG, it stands for Environment, Social and Governance. Um, and so ESG is a big trend in finance. Okay. Um, and the environment part of it has been getting, I think, particularly a lot of attention and governance to a secondary extent. So it's basically about how do you, so you've now got you know, investment managers who are um, divesting from companies you know, that are you know, mining fossil fuels or like, producing fossil fuels, for example. Um, so that's the kind of environment side of things. There's a lot of investment funds being set up that are you know, supposed to be good for the environment. So what's the equivalent? I think the human rights kind of investment space is significantly behind. Yeah. So how do we push that forward? So it could be, that's e, a, was it ECG? ESG, Environment, e Social, Governance. Yeah. And the social, I think, is the, of the three letters of the acronym, yeah. it's the one that's the most underdone. Which is where your human rights would come. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit of a challenge, I guess, when you're working with private companies as well, because they, um, obviously there has been things in the past where the companies have put profit before people and things like that. So are you seeing a trend where companies are taking more ethical mandates for what they do and their investment strategy? Well, it's, it's not really my area of expertise, so yeah. I don't want no, to no. Like, comment on it too much. I'm really just starting to get into it. But I think there's a definite trend, um, and the UN have put together you know, the UN guiding principles that apply to biz the business sector. And it's really a self-reporting framework, I think, largely. That's my understanding. Mm. I might be wrong. So there's increasing um, you know, expectation now that companies will... Do 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 diligent do due diligence that they didn't used to do, mm. and you know produce reports, kind of, you know I guess self-reporting on their own practices, and I guess self-reports always have some limitations, mm. right? Yeah. Um, but at least the conversation has started. So I think there's a there's a trend yeah. there, but it's still relatively early mm. days. To add to your question, I wonder what Hermie would look like for corporates or private. Yeah brands or like what would Hermie look like 
let overlaid on Apple yeah. or something yeah. versus Patagonia for another one yeah. versus Sony right? yeah. and stuff like that. All these big multinational. Yeah. Um, yeah, and there are other organizations that are producing data tracking the human rights performance of companies. Oh, right. Cool. And so there is a whole is, right, work, work that's going on in that area. Our focus is on governments, but yeah. of course countries don't operate in a context that's independent of countries. Yeah. And so what's that interaction? And that's really what we're starting to explore. Wow. But, you know, the, I mean, uh, the exciting thing about you know, Hermie is that it overlaps with almost everything. And I really, I really get excited by those, those cross-disciplinary um, connections. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and that comes through, your excitement, your passion for it. Um, and when we met, which was in the context of TEDx Wellington, um, 2019, you spoke at, was uh, it was an obvious fit that what you were doing was not only groundbreaking, but you were the right people, person to tell that story. Mm-hmm. It was it was captivating, even though you probably still hate me for that experience. <laughs> it was, um, yeah. <laughs> what happened? Had its ups and downs. Oh, just, just. I like that. No, no, <laughs> that's all right. Nothing in particular <laughs> happened. <laughs> I think it's just the emotionally charged uh, expectation and the rigor that we go through mm. to enable mm. people to stand and tell their story through the TEDx format. Like in TEDx Wellington, I don't know if you knew, but we put all our speakers through a five-week coaching experience as a group together, not individual, although you did get some individual stuff, but it's more of a group experience that you pass through. And there's lots of reasons why we do that. One is that we create a group of people who have a shared experience that then they can lean on each other. Because mm. for many of them, it's a unique experience They've never done anything like this before. So therefore, there's a lot of wide eyes when you turn up on the first day. Uh, but then throughout the weeks, it's like, okay, yeah, you know, you're yeah. going through this. Even though we have nothing in common when it comes to topic, but we have this shared experience of trying to get this right, standing without a script, right, yeah. right? So that's kind of, yeah, wow. I, I still have great conversation with people who have gone through what you've gone through, where they look at me with a side eye yeah. and go, yeah. That was the worst thing you ever asked me to do. <laughs> it was so amazing. It really was. You did it like the whole team did an incredible yeah. job of supporting all of us. And I now feel a really strong bond with all of the other um, mm. speakers at that TEDx Wellington yeah. because I guess we were, you know, opened up to one another. <laughs> yeah, it's a highly yeah. emotionally yeah. charged experience for most people. Yeah. It was kind of a almost like the opposite of this in some ways and <laughs> that there was so much preparation and expectation yeah. that goes into it as yeah. opposed to just sitting around and chatting yeah. without yeah. any particular preparation. Yeah. I, I do have a lot of respect uh, you know, for what, what you're doing and also just the, the bigger idea I think of, of standing up for things and, and saying what needs to be said and mm. I think it can be a little bit tough sometimes to do that. I mean it's very tough yeah. you know um, and you know I guess almost from, uh, from an artistic perspective and I can kind of hide behind the art, you know, I just do the photos, you know, I make the thing, but when you're talking about something so important um, for different people, you know, you're you're putting yourself out there, and it takes a lot of, you know, a lot of will, I think. But bravery comes in many guises, I think, you know, I think the whole creative process is an act of bravery unto itself, you know, I'm not saying that you're brave or anything like that. <laughs> but I do think that to get out there and create something and then put it out to the world and have the world then react or not to it, yeah, yeah. that's, you know, having voice, again, coming back to something I know 
a little bit about is the most um, um, brave thing you can do is to stand in that voice, whatever it may be. Mm. And your voice happens to be photography at the moment and, and the other things that you do. I'm not restricting you to that, but that's a very much a forward-facing yeah. thing that everybody knows you for. Yeah. But that's, you know, not everybody, A, does what you do in the way you do it and puts it out there. Yeah. 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 So I don't know, how do you get that nervous tension when you create something and then you go, world? Like you've done crowdfunding of books, yeah. you've done like those experiences online. Well, I, I guess I, I, I mean, I don't put too much of myself or very little of myself into the work. You know, the New Zealand series is prob probably okay. the most. You don't, did you say? Yeah, yeah. I don't. I mean. Is it, so is that a very deliberate? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I almost think it's a very scientific approach. You know, I'm, I'm creating these images and, and producing and delivering this yeah. thing, um, but it's not. I mean, it's me, but it's also quite um, objective in a way. It's sort of like, uh, it's about the, the place. Mm -hmm. And so even when I'm talking about the work, I try to, you know, it's not my, my thing. I'm sort of in these places doing this thing, um, but I leave it up to the audience and, and that to engage with it, I think, yeah. But I mean, there's a bit, I, mean I, I guess I kind of <laughs> want to tease that yeah. out a little yeah. bit more yeah, because, yeah, you know, you're choosing what to photograph and how mm. to do it and the fact that yeah. you're doing it at night time. Yeah. And that's, that's coming from you. There, there's <laughs> creative choices. Um, I, I mean, I, I put it down to, though, it is that sort of, um, maybe it's the, the voice, you know, um, but the, <laughs> it tells me what to do. But you know, it's voices you know, I'm, again. Uh, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm wondering. I'm, I'm, I'm letting. I'm letting the city kind of show me what it's got. And you know, there's certain things that I focus on. There's certain things that maybe I don't capture. Right. But it, it is this journey, and, and I don't go out, sit out, and say oh, I'm going to do this. I just sort of, I literally go and wander, you know, and, and see what comes along. And even in New Zealand, you know, I was down in Christchurch shooting the red zone, and I literally just turned up there. I, I kind of knew which direction it was. Yeah. I ended up there, and then you just start to see, and then you get into this flow state where it's a creative, you know, creative mindset. You know, I'm sure you're familiar with that flow state idea where you're just you're just doing it, and it's it's not so like, well, I'm trying to do this. It's like. Mm. But I would say, and to, to champion what you were kind of in there, you are putting yourself yeah, into it. I especially guess. because any artistic endeavour that creates something that is beautiful, there has to be a level of mastery behind it. Mm. In whatever guise it might be, and, yeah. and you can't literally just... You could probably get lucky, you know, <laughs> definitely doing this, right? You'd probably get lucky. One of them would look like, that's a good shot, I was just doing this, right? Shooting from the hip um, and stuff like that. But what you just said is like, it's so considered, yeah. it's framed, like it's scientific. Well, there's a process and yeah. a mastery behind that to create something which was intentional, which is beautiful. Yeah. Uh, I'm almost like, I, I'm reminded of like Edward Hopper when I look yeah. at your work, yeah. which is totally weird. But it, it's like, if Edward Hopper didn't paint people in his paintings, do you know Edward Hopper, you know, the night walk and all that stuff, mm. that would be kind of how I would Frame. The shadows of the people, yeah. 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 Do you oh. never photograph people? Oh, I mean, for example, you know, the, the very first image in Bangkok Phosphors, which was my second photo book, is a an old wooden, um, like, Thai house um, on sort of on the canal, and you can just see a light, and you can see the shadow of a little girl inside the window. Okay. Um, and so, you know, very, you know, sparingly, I, I do put mm. people into these characters, these kind of allegorical characters, but it's never sort of, you know, hey, here I am. It's, it's, almost, it's always just sort of a shadow mm. here and there. Yeah. Fascinating. Because I've seen some photography recently when I can't remember where I came across it. It was just uh, there's a new thing that you can get, like an app, 
that you take a long exposure and it removes the people yeah. from them using AI and stuff like that, right? Uh, so you went, you can go to tourist places essentially. Right, take and of take the Taj Mahal, right? <laughs> yeah, and then yeah. You, the end result is no one there, right? You say, yeah. This is my fault. And you're like, how did you? Oh, it's just you know, I don't know what I'm doing. But basically, it's a program that does yeah. all that. But you do that naturally. Yeah, I wait for people to go home <laughs> <while> <laughs> and go to sleep late at night. Yeah, in the, being that guy. Yeah. So yeah, I want to kind of yeah push back a little bit and challenge you to okay. say how intentional that is. And now, yeah, I guess, I guess there is an intention there, but I think. You know, again, the, the flip side of that is when you you have a concrete message or something you're standing up for and you're doing and you're, you, you know, because I think in a way artistically I, I can do what I do and it, it can be what it is. Whereas when you're, you know, doing something, um, you know, you, you've got a message and it's a very clear message. You know, um, it's like yeah, you, hard questions are going to come and you know there's 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 answers. There's, there's certain things that you can. You know, there's only certain things you can say to respond to that, and I don't know. It feels like it's a, it's a, it's definitely a higher or a bigger commitment. I feel, um, and especially when you're you know getting interviewed or someone's asking you those questions. Whereas mm. with my work, you know, I feel like I, I can kind of put a lot of that onto the audience to to look yeah. to read into it. Gotcha. You know? yeah. yeah, yeah. And I know you talk about isolation a lot in your words yeah. and, and your work yeah. as well. And I'm reminded of a great uh, one of my favourite poets is a guy called Reina Maria Rilke which I really love, and let's just say it out loud with all the R's. Yeah. Uh, but he, he, in one of his books, talks about isolation as a gift, one of his poems. You yeah. know? And from your work perspective, that is very much, even though you do collaborate with the city, but you also collaborate with others after it, but the act itself is isolated. Yeah, I mean, I think that's it's, it's an, an, a core part of, of my practice, really, and coming from growing up in, in very isolated places and very... Very much, you know that that whole thing and and the city as this kind of uh, amazing thing and and going through it as an individual and exploring it as is, is, you know I guess core to what I do, mm. yeah. Which is kind of counter to what you've done, which is collaborate, right? At the, at the beginning. Right. Well, the collaboration part is key. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I still kind of uh, I like to hold things lightly, and let mm. them um, be shaped by the community as much as possible because we, we want okay, to be yeah. producing data that are useful for the people who want to use them and so yeah. that needs to you know so the use of kind of co-design techniques um to you know get things and it's constantly evolving so mm. our methodology is always being slightly tweaked mm. um our data presentation is always evolving and being improved as we get feedback and some of your more recent video stuff that's gone up with the scribe video. Oh, yeah, the stuff. little animated videos. Yeah, those are great to explain yeah. exactly what is uh, the outcomes are, how you yeah. go about it, the, yeah. the different things. Uh, I'm also reminded of Hans Roslin, uh, oh, yeah. the, the yeah. old, uh, bless him, not with us now, but uh, old economist who used to make data dance, essentially. Oh, yeah, he's, he was amazing. His videos are just yeah. so... Have you ever seen any of no. his videos? What's the name of his series or... I don't Company, know, I just remember I he did a great TED talk where, where he kind of just like really celebrated through data how well we're doing as humanity. And he was so enthusiastic. <laughs> yes. and, oh, yeah. Well, you know, I think at a higher level, um, you know, I'm feeling like there's been a lot of negativity in the world for, for, for a while now. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, even, you know, for me starting out my career and stuff, coming into a financial crisis and all, you know, the 2008, all of that stuff. And it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of feeling like we're starting to maybe get over it generally and move towards kind of this this dream that, 
um, a lot of my, I guess, my work, you know, looking at older, like the dream of modernity, for example, you know, post-war, the visions of, of a better world, which mm. it's, I don't know, sometimes it feels like the zeitgeist is that, yeah, we're all kind of like, it's, it's not so great. But there is maybe these kind of um, visions and kind of bigger ideas that are starting to percolate, which I think is a positive I mean, I don't, I don't have any data to back that up. Sorry, but, you know... Um, we, need, we need someone like an economist, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think there is a natural tendency for people to focus on... Like, the media focus more on negative stories than positive stories, yeah. and that's what you hear. So it's actually really hard, I think, for individuals to know what trends are, which mm. is one of the benefits of data, right? Um, there is actually a book I read a while ago, and I can't remember the author's name, Enlightenment Now, and he kind of tracks through a whole lot of data. Basically, basically the, the, the point of his, of his book is to show how much things are improving, right. to try and counter this idea that everything's getting worse. I mean, Pinker? Stephen Pinker? Yes, Stephen Pink, Pinker. Yeah. yeah. Pinker, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, right now, in the middle of a pandemic, yeah. You know, it's made, yeah, I think a lot of things will have gone negative, you yeah. know, gone bent backwards. But generally, you know, life experiences have been increasing and the number of people being, you know, killed by homicide or in wars has been yeah. decreasing. Lifting and that, out of poverty that, even. Lifting know. people out of poverty. There are lots of positive trends, but then, you know, there's also some really, you know, negative trends. You know, the, the, the idea of, in the human rights world, it's called closing civic space, mm. which is the idea that in a lot of countries... Um, it's an increasingly, increasingly difficult for people to be able to say what they think or attend mm. protests and advocate for change because um, mm. there's a big crackdown on that kind of freedom of the you know, civil society sector to be able to advocate for change. You know, we're lucky living in New Zealand that mm. um, those sorts of problems, are, they still happen, but they're few and far between. Mm. Yeah. Of civic space. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I, I think I, I can understand that. You know, I mean, just in um, yeah, India and yeah. Philippines. Hong Kong. Or even, Hong, yeah, Hong Kong. Even in Thailand. Hong Kong's a very strong example. Yeah. You know, you're, if you were one of the former pro democracy activists in Hong Kong, you've either now fled the country or you're in prison. Mm. That's scary because yep. I know you've spent time here, I've spent time here, and I just delighted in Hong Kong in yeah. 2009 when I was there for a little bit. It was just great. It's know? a great city, yeah. It's vibrant. It was so kind of... I, I never liked... Uh, I like Kowloon. I never liked Hong Kong Island. Yeah. yeah. I felt more authentic and yeah. get lost there, right? And yeah. suddenly you're the only white guy there. Yeah. Like, okay, this is what it feels like to be in Asia. Well, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's a very multicultural place, but it's also mm-hmm. got a lot of history, you know, and it's... I mean, I think the history kind of makes it... Um, just as interesting as well, you know, because you've got the colonial thing and all of that. But, um, but yeah, the, the, the civic space is really important. And same with, with Thailand, you know, they had the protests. Right, yeah, and, course. you know, I was there. I mean, there was a bomb went off when I was there. You know, not, I mean, not a major, but, you know, that sort of stuff happens. Mm-hmm. People get scared to, to, put, to say what they want to say because uh, they're being watched. Or you know, you can be, get taken away without any mm-hmm. recourse. And that's, uh, again, that uh, uh, inc- inclusion, incursion, I wanted to say, mm. of, of technology in some of these states, shall we say, uh, who can now get into the point where we're facial recognition, where we're tracking mobiles and stuff like that. So very quickly, if you've got an authoritarian government, um, the yep. data in your 
cell phone will actually do you harm rather than good now because you can be tracked and stuff. I mean, technology is used for good and for bad. Yeah, for sure. So it works both ways. I mean, because, I mean, the fact that people can now video things. Yeah, great. Um, right? Especially, yeah. especially yeah. in countries where, you know, they are free to then share them. And, yeah. you know, so, for example, the videoing of the, you know, the killing of George, George Floyd, mm-hmm. if that hadn't been caught on video... There's no way that that police officer would have been held accountable yeah. for that. Um, and so there's lots of that sort of thing. And there's lots of sophisticated ways that technology are being used to collect information. Yeah. You know, that satellite technology has you know, captured a lot of what's going on in um, Xinjiang in China with the Uyghur population. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it can be used for very nefarious purposes mm. and with surveillance and so forth. So and the social currency now in, in China, oh, yeah. where the, they're giving people social ratings or status. Mm. Yeah. Um, and also, and like I Facebook think, overlaid onto a society. Yeah. You get texts for doing good. And I think one of the new new things, which kind of links back to the conversation earlier about cryptocurrency, is you know governments issuing um, government issued cryptocurrency. Yeah. So do you, are you familiar with that? No. So they call it a central bank digital currency. And so what it would mean is every single transaction is, instead of going through you know, your, your ANZ or Westpac and having to subpoena that information to see what mm. that transaction is, the government would just issue you. Whoa. And it would all be... Um, everything will then become tracked. Yeah, and already we're seeing a demise in cash. And so every transaction's kind of already in the system, but yeah. because it's through private companies, it's sort of... I really like using cash. Well, in a lot of countries, cash is all you can use. I don't like the idea that my bank knows no. what I had for lunch. I, I even don't have a snap card, snap a card for that reason. Oh, do you? oh, really? Just so if I'm jumping on a bus, I'll be like, I'll pay with cash. Yeah. Because I don't like an idea of like, because you have to align both your credit card and your profile mm. to it. And it's like, well, you don't need that information. Yeah, that's right. I'm sorry, but I want to use your service. Can I separate it out? And they were like, no. I was like, okay, I'm not using your service then. Yeah. I just have to pay. I mean, I'm a big, I guess, as an artist, I, I like to I dream about utopias and, mm-hmm. and just think, visualize things. You know, it's sort of, I do a lot of reading, sci fi, that sort of thing. And I, I do feel with, with the crypto thing, um, with Bitcoin, there is this potential, there's the sliver of a, of a kind of an ideal yeah. that the internet has kind of enabled for information, for finances, um, mm. and for being able to make a transaction without um, censoring people, you know, yeah. and if you want to support somebody who's doing something and their bank account gets frozen because they're deemed unworthy, um, you can always send them Bitcoin. There's mm-hmm. no way to stop it's it. So, sometimes the people who are deemed unworthy are because they're like serious human rights violators, and that's why their accounts are frozen. Yeah, <laughs> but even as well, yeah, <laughs> it, it works both ways. But you know, yeah, um, yeah. yeah you yeah. have the you have the, the the good people and the bad people yeah. dealing in cash. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah that, and there's a whole cybercrime unit mm. out there who are kind of scratching their heads around. Well, it's also being used by drug smugglers and yeah. stuff like it's that. N- none of it is simple. Yeah, no, it's mm. not. But, but mm. At the, at the essence, at the heart, I suppose, of it is this potential. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, when you visualise that, because if I can bring this back to my practice, you know, um, my first book, Dance Your Dreams, was focused on this post-war housing of Japan. And, you know, Tokyo was, was burnt to the ground during the war. You know, um, millions of people died. And they rebuilt that with this, what was modern modernity at the time, which was mm-hmm. this public housing infrastructure, subways, highways, all of this stuff, which we, it's kind of, you know, we, it's kind of old school now, but at the time, you know, yeah. space travel, all of these things, you know, space odyssey, it was all the future for them. Yeah. 
And in a way, you know, what's the future look like for us? You know, do we have these kind of wild sci-fi visions of what the future might look like? You know, what would it be like if you were able to just send money and, and build things? And that money wasn't deflationary. You know, it was a deflationary asset. It doesn't lose its value over time. Like, you know, I don't, I don't make any money on, the, on interest in my bank account. I don't know about you. But, it, you know, we're printing so much money and, and it kind of governments are responsible for that. And I feel like, you know, there is this vision where we could, we could have a renaissance, an artistic renaissance, renaissance. everything, you know. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just dreaming here, but... Hey, I think uh, what we've displayed around the table here is this innate um, hunger for goodness and yeah. to dream big and to do things, especially with your work. I'm aware of your time, so I don't want to like wrap, wrap up, but yeah. I also want to kind of come to some kind of conclusion in the sense of maybe asking you about uh, some of your future initiatives, projects, ideas, hopes, dreams, desires, all those things. Um, I always, uh, so we had uh, Paul Atkins, or Atkins, depending on how you describe it, uh, Chief Executive of Zealandia, here, uh, in a few episodes ago. And what Zealandia does very well is that it asks a different question of us when it comes to thinking about our future, because they have a 500-year plan mm-hmm. <laughs> and strategy that goes with it, and we talked about that, it was great. So I'd love to ask you in terms of your organizations, your art, What's your kind of five to five hundred year plan for it? Well, um, gosh, I don't know. The one thing that's coming to mind, and this might be slightly off topic, but it's a little story. <laughs> um, I've had a conversation with my son a couple of years ago, and we're sitting around the dinner table one night, and he says, Mum, what's the country in the world with the... Um, worst respect for women's rights and I was like what he's probably like you know 10 or something at the time I was like wow he's like it's really good question he's like really taking an interest and I was like oh no there's lots of countries in the world that don't respect women's Mm -hmm. rights he's like yeah but which one's the worst and I was like I don't know which one's the worst he's like well just tell me one that's really bad and I'm like okay well Saudi Arabia's got a reputation for being pretty bad in this area he's like okay great and I didn't think anything of it and then a couple of weeks later we're sitting at dinner. He's like, hey, mum, you know how you told me about Saudi Arabia? He's like, well, I've been playing um, this game called BitLife, and I have tried now spawning as a girl in Saudi Arabia, like, many times. And what I've found is, like, I never have any trouble. Like, <laughs> I can get a driver's license. <laughs> I can go to university. I can get any kind of job I want. <laughs> and... So I guess my, maybe this is my end of this like dream is like people would really like whoever is designing this game, but mm. life would make it a little bit more realistic. Ooh, yeah, that would be charming. And so I guess my vision of a future is one where how countries are treating people is just something that everybody really understands, yeah. and it's really front of mind and it drives a lot of decision making so mm. I don't know I don't know how that links into the video game thing but that's just I guess when it would be what part of the education of yeah. young people growing up they play video games if, yeah. if they're getting some kind of real world um, Makes sense, yeah. knowledge from that then that's going to shape their understanding of the world and mm. how they, they mm. um, interact with it yeah. Love that. Oh, great, great answer. That's great. What about you, Bert? Oh, 
Yeah, well, I mean, look, I think for my personal practice, you know, I think um, I really love being back in Wellington. Um, I'm kind of looking to make this my, my, my permanent base. Um, I'd, I'd love to travel a bit more in, in the coming years and, and continue this journey of exploring places and housing and, and architecture and, and all of that. Um, you know, kind of go and, and have these journeys, have these engagements with people around the world and, and, and photograph things and um, create work that asks questions. I think longer term, um, you know, that's sort of starting to happen. I think longer term, though, I am interested in pursuing more of the, the written and, and the kind of narrative of it, um, asking questions, you know, not just the photography, but the, the broader question um, about where things have been and where things could be. Um, so I've photographed a lot of older places and, and kind of the dreams that didn't quite happen or they happened in ways that we didn't expect. Yeah. Um, and so looking forward, you know, what, what's the future going to look like? Mm. And I think I'm starting to see I, I have a bit of a responsibility as a creative to, to, to engage with that. Mm. Um, you know, travelling a bit more, um, meeting different people and, and seeing their story. And I can see myself doing more of that in, in the coming yeah. years. So, yeah, I've got a big focus on that. And um, more broadly, just yeah, creating good work yeah. and being a good person. Yeah. I think we can all sell that one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. When I grow up, that's why I want to be a good yeah. person. Yeah. That's How about you? Thank you for asking. Next five years, similar to you in terms of exploring this idea of my purpose, Nexus, which is the giving people voice and how that manifests. I, I'm really excited now that I know that. Mm. And in the next couple of years, just it's given me, a, I suppose, a bit of a North Star so I can say no to things now, as well as yes to things, so that's kind of cool. But also being, a, I suppose, a bit more autonomous with uh, the creative side of what I do, uh, thinking very differently about digital offerings online, um, doing it very creatively, like, I suppose, Creative Welly, as well as an, an indication of me stepping into something that really I have no right to do, first of all. Why am I doing this? Because I like to do it, but I've got no skills, really, in this. I'm just doing it. But secondly, how do I add a new, uh, sorry, um, an overlay of really creative and unique approaches to it? Even though anybody can start a podcast, right? But do they do it like this? Don't know. Um, so I want to explore that both in the event space uh, and both in the kind of speaking space as well, still, or storytelling space rather. I've got these masterclasses that I do called Purposeful Storytelling that I go and do for clients, uh, usually about 12 people. And it's kind of a, a, a really condensed version of what you experienced, really. Mm. Um, it's me saying, look, this is what a good oratory approach would be, both in terms of developing a story, and this is it as well delivered. Right, here's your mission, here's some cues, you have a test, now stand up and try it. Because I do believe that storytelling is going to be the way um, forward in so many guises, but I think in New Zealand, just as in my educational system back in the UK, we don't celebrate voice or aid it, aid its development enough. So I, I can help, I think, in that mm. area. Mm. And then the next 500 years, I'm happy to die. I don't want to go into cryogenic <laughs> frozen thing. I don't want my consciousness uploaded like uh, Elon Musk wants this. Uh, but equally, it would be nice to create a legacy of something that's back. Oh, that was that guy years ago who was short and sounded funny. Yeah, um, plant a tree, you know, yeah. The DK, yeah. whatever it is. Plant a tree, yeah. yeah. But thank you. Have we covered everything we needed to cover? I think I was a good array. It was great. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. This I could keep fun. talking. Yeah. <laughs>
We could, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm just very conscious of your time and yeah. uh, and the tape running out, even though we don't use tape nowadays, but it's, it's good to still say that. I wonder when that's going to change. When, when we sort of say the tape's going to run, or roll the, the, VC, the tape, yeah. Like that. yeah. Yeah. Who knows? Could, could, could stick around. I mean, well, you know, language the, is, uh, the icons, the save icon on your computer. If you think about like new people starting, mm. yes, yeah, like a floppy disk, <laughs> oh, right? Oh, right, yeah, the floppy disk. Yeah. <laughs> new people starting using computers for the first time. What is it? I have no concept of that. No, but they still recognise it. Yeah. Well, that, it's a language, you know, and we see mm. that a lot of words, we don't know why we say it, but it, yeah. we say it. So I, it's a visual language, and it, I, I imagine it's going to stay there, and people will be like, what is the, what's the etymology of this yeah. thing, you know? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. That was Creative Welly, episode 18. Thank you very much for lending us your ears, and thanks again to Jono over at Empire Films for recording the video podcast of this audio podcast that you're now listening to. Check us out at creativewelly.com for the video version. It's so unique. It's so lovely. And a big shout-out as well to David from Flashdog Studios for hosting us. My name is DK. It always will be. And you've been listening to Courageous Conversations with Bold Humans.